to Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball podcast, where this week we're going to cover all of the upcoming NBA free agency rumors. Where will Will Chamberlain end up? Um, Does a Larry Bird trade to the San Diego Clippers make sense? Jeff, what are you talking about, man? The madness that is NBA free agency. I I keep getting my different podcasts messed up. This this is the baseball podcast, isn't it? Well, you you know so much about the NBA. I'm surprised you don't just do NBA I, stuff. I do, and I and I love it. But you know that's that's my bad. This is actually two strike noise. It's it's a baseball podcast. I am Jeff Paulson. That other voice is Mark A. Johnson, my co-host. How you doing, everybody? We are here to talk about the grand old game of baseball and we like to start off the show just kind of bsing about a couple of things that we saw during the week and mark i figured it wouldn't actually be a show if we didn't bring up uh, jose batista because we seem to bring him up every show of course we've talked about his bat flip quite often we've talked about his run-in with uh, rognet odur the next season well that bat flip of course came uh, after hitting a home run in uh, in the uh, 2015 ALDS, that was Game Five against the Rangers. That ball went up for auction here recently. Okay, can you guess how much would you pay for a kind of a notorious home run ball like that? Um, I mean, if if I had the wherewithal or like what I would pay right this minute, because I'd be about at eight bucks, because that's what I have available. <laughs> Well, somebody, and I've got to assume that this is a Ranger fan, paid $28,000 for that ball. Excuse me? $28,000? Like, $28,000. Now, <laughs> frankly, for me, I would rather have the bat than the ball. But am I am I forking over twenty-eight k? No. No, no, but wow. Somebody had money to burn. Like, if somebody, if, if the gloves, the batting gloves that Ricky Henderson wore when he stole his 130th base or his 939th base, you know, a big, a big record, if those gloves went up on auction, yeah, like, and money was, was no object for me, I still don't know that I could spend over 10000 on something like that. Who, but Who are you kidding? You take out a second mortgage for those. And I'd wave goodbye to my wife as yeah, I did it because yeah. she would not be sticking around. Which, which is a bummer, but the trade-off is you get Ricky's gloves. Man. I can they maybe I can wear them and they'll keep me warm when I have nowhere to live <laughs> if I paid that much for them. Well, you could always stay here with me, except for you know we won't allow it. And you would probably want one of the gloves, so oh. then it would be yeah, at least an arm, a leg, or a glove. Oh, what else has happened this week? I see that uh, baseball is also considering a DH in the National League. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I, they've already said it's not going to happen this year. And, and uh, frankly, for me, I, I'd like to see it. I, I'm an American League guy. Seeing a pitcher bat, you know, seeing Madison Bumgarner bat is is fine. But you know, one or two good hitting pitchers out of you know a couple of hundred. Yeah. It's just boring to me. I, I sacrifice bunts. They just it, it doesn't do it for me. Yeah, others would argue that it's a little more strategic and so on with the bunting, double switching, and all that stuff. But I gotta admit, I'm of the same, and and this might cost us some listeners, but I'm in the same uh, under the same uh, belief that that I think eventually everything has to go DH. 
Yeah, and it's way too big of an advantage yeah. in interleague play, but then especially in the World Series, oh, yeah. where you're essentially giving up, the American League team is essentially giving up a, a batting position right. for most of the game. I, I just, you need to play under the same rules, I think. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm sure that uh, listeners will let us know how they feel, and that's fine. So uh, I, I got two more items here before we jump into the meat of the episode. First of all, uh, we've already mentioned Jose Bautista uh, today, so we need to mention the other player that we seem to mention every single episode, everybody's favorite middle reliever, Adam Ottavino. The big O. So we, we talked about him in the numbers episode about why he wears the number zero. We talked about him once he got signed with the Yankees, he's going to wear that single digit zero, the first Yankee to ever do that. Yes. Well, I saw recently that he was a guest on a radio show and he made some waves. He said that he would strike out Babe Ruth every single time he faced him if Babe Ruth were alive and in his prime today. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's interesting. So I have waffled back and forth here on this one because baseball was so different in the 1920s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Could Babe Ruth just step in, if he was transported here in his prime, could he step into the batter's box? I'm guessing he did not often see a 95 to 100 mile per hour fastball and then somebody break off a slider on the next pitch. Probably not, yes. You, you are, you are probably correct. And, and also, the, just look at the general overall size and strength of the players, too. Yeah, exactly. And one thing Ottavino said was, and this is a quote, the guy ate hot dogs and drank beer and did whatever he did. It was just a different game. I can see where he's coming from, but it's kind of like saying, you know, it's kind of like uh, LeBron James saying, oh, I think I could, you know, take Jordan one-on-one every game if I played him right <laughs> Right. It's, it's just too different, and not that I'm comparing Adam Ottavino to Michael Jordan or LeBron James, but... It's such a different game, a different era. I think he might have a point. I, I don't know how many great players from that long ago, that's almost 100 years, could come in in their prime. And I'm guessing they could eventually compete, but it would probably be a steep and long learning curve. Probably, yeah. Yeah, they have the, obviously the natural talent, but it takes a lot more than natural talent to play now. I thought that I thought that was very interesting. One more thing I saw that was just fascinating to me, and and then I realized that this actually this next story kind of hit home. I've actually been to two of these places. I saw a story about Sulphur Dell Stadium. It was a stadium in Nashville, Tennessee, and what makes the stadium so unique was that. There was a 22-foot incline in right field. What? Wow. And, and not only that, the, the wall in right field in the corner there was only 262 feet away from home plate. Oh, wow. Even I could go deep there. I'll post a picture of this uh, on Twitter and Instagram. You can, you can find us at Two Strike Noise on both of those platforms. And this is... And incredible, there's some incredible pictures of this where there's right fielder standing at kind of the base of the hill and it just goes straight up. And it, it's incredible. Now, what happened here is 
there was an, an old stadium there originally, and they actually turned the stadium around when they rebuilt it. So home plate used to be right around where the foul pole was down right field. So those were grandstands up there, thusly why there was a hill there. And then when they rebuilt it, they kind of turned it around. Now, what's really cool about it is I've actually been to this stadium, to the location. This is where Nashville tore it down a while ago and they built First Tennessee Park two years ago, I believe it opened, um, which is now the Nashville Sounds home ballpark. And that was where the A's AAA club was the last couple of years. And I got to a couple of games there. It's a beautiful park, but that is the old site of Sulphur Dell Stadium. That's interesting. It, it is the, you've got to see these pictures. They're, they're just really cool. Yeah. It made me, though, think of some other kind of unique parks. Uh, old Tiger Stadium had that flagpole in center field, if you remember. That was in play. Oh, sure. Yankee Stadium. So we all know about the monuments in, in center field at Yankee Stadium. The monuments used to be, they weren't behind the wall. They were just in center field and they were in play. And there's a video of somebody, you know, chasing a ball and having to squeeze between two monuments to go track the ball down <coughs> behind it, which I thought was really interesting. I, I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. And Fenway Park, of course, they've got that ladder on the green monster. That's in play. It can hit off of that and take a weird bounce. Yeah. And then finally, the one I found that also kind of ties into to somewhere I've been, Old Ponce de Leon Stadium in Atlanta. It was the home to the Negro League team, the Atlanta Black Crackers. And they had an oak tree in center field. And this was a big oak tree. But it was deep into center field. Only two players, and it was in play, only two players ever hit balls into there. One was Babe Ruth, and the other was Eddie Matthews. Those were both during exhibition games. They both hit them into this tree, and they never came down, so they were awarded home runs. And that tree actually is still standing. There is no longer a park there. There's actually a Home Depot now. (laughs) But this park is in the parking lot behind it, and it is huge. I'll put a picture of that as well, because that's... That's really cool from when I lived in Atlanta. I, I remember uh, making a trip specifically just to see where old Ponce de Leon Stadium was. So some interesting uh, interesting quirks to baseball, which is something, again, you don't get in any other sport. Every other sports field is locked in in terms of, of size. Sure. All right, so I'm going to start off today, and I am going to talk about one of the true characters of the game someone that I had heard quite a bit about, knew a little bit about, and then did this research and just found him to be a fascinating and very well-liked guy. So I am talking about Mark the Bird Fidrich. So this is the first kind of contemporary story that I'm doing. I've done... I've done everything that's happened back in the turn of the century. So Mark Fidrich was actually born in Worcester, Massachusetts, August 14th, 1954. He would probably have been described as having ADHD today. Sure. He was a bit hyperactive, kind of hard to focus. He actually had to repeat first and second grade because of this. And because he was held back those two years, he wasn't allowed to play baseball his senior year or any sports his senior year in high school because he was too old. So his parents actually took out a loan and sent him to a private school for his senior year where he was allowed to play sports. He was okay, uh, especially in baseball. He played every position. 
nobody was actually ever sent to scout him and he was not offered any sort of scholarships or anything to continue playing baseball after high school. But he did graduate high school and he was going to head to Highlands University in New Mexico where he was, uh, was going to enroll in a two-year engineering program. But unbeknownst to him, when he was playing in high school, while nobody was there to see him particularly play, there was uh, a scout that came to one game that was there to scout somebody on the other team and actually took notice of, of Mark Fidrich. He was a scout for the Tigers, the Detroit Tigers, and he thought, hey, this kid might be okay. He's actually got really good speed. Uh, when he was pitching, he had good control, and he thought he had the body type that would really fill out when he got older. He was he was very lanky. He was kind of, when, it, when he was pitching, he was a lot of elbows and knees. Unbeknownst to Fidrich, the Tigers decided to take a flyer on him, and they drafted him in the 10th round of the 1974 Major League Baseball draft. Theoretically, they could have they could have drafted him in the last round because literally nobody knew who he was. He was essentially me in high school, and the rest of the league was every girl in my high school. <laughs> so Fidrich was actually, you know, he just started working for the summer. He was working at a company that would put gas tanks in gas stations. And so he starts his day, he's digging a ditch so they can put this this tank in there. And a friend comes flying up to him on his bike with a newspaper that had the news that he had been drafted. Then his dad pulls up in a car shortly after with the same newspaper and tells him to quit his job. You've been drafted. <laughs> now, can you imagine that he didn't even know anybody was thinking about drafting him, but he was drafted and nobody called him or anything. It, it took almost a day to find out in the newspaper <laughs> that this guy had been drafted. Oh, wow. So his dad says, you know, quit, quit your job. You, you're going to go play baseball. But Fidrich, and this was this was totally Mark Fidrich, he said, absolutely not. I got to stay and at least finish my job today. I can't leave these guys, you know, a man down. So he stayed that day and kept digging a ditch. He's a really good guy. <laughs> so he signed with the Tigers on Saturday. And by Monday, he was in uniform. He was assigned to Bristol, Tennessee in the Rookie League. This is his first time living on his own. He adjusts pretty well. He's really a happy-go-lucky guy, kind of rolls with the punches. You listen to him when you watch a video or there's plenty of interviews uh, on YouTube with him. And the way he talks, you think he might not be that bright. You know, he's kind of, he kind of talks slowly but what he says is, is actually, you know, very, very smart. He's a, he's a pretty sharp guy. So he does okay by himself in this small town in rookie ball. And I can only imagine what a rookie league team is living like in the 70s. Oof. It could not have been plush. So his first year in professional baseball, he goes 3-0 and in relief and is eventually assigned to Class A Lakeland, Florida the next spring. So that team was not good. He started the season. He went five and nine, but people were starting to take notice that he was actually having a pretty good season. Just everybody behind him stunk. So he got a reputation as being quite a character on this team. After every home game, he would actually hitchhike home because he didn't have a car. <laughs> Eventually, his manager spied him and uh, gave him a ride home. And then he just, you know, said, why don't I just give you a ride after each game instead of putting the thumb out? So... 
Eventually, he gets sent to A Montgomery, Alabama, late in the season, where he pitched in relief again. Now, this is noteworthy because this is actually where a coach noticed his resemblance to Big Bird from Sesame Street. Yes. The wild blonde hair, his his nose, his gawky angular frame. He was he's at this point he's six three, about one hundred and seventy five pounds, and he's got this kind of quirky high pitched voice. And from there, the bird was born. So injuries in the Tigers' system forced another promotion, and he ended up in Triple A Evanston, Indiana, in his second year in professional baseball. He's already in Triple A. He started there, and he went four and one with a one point five nine ERA. So everybody's pretty happy with him. He shows up at spring training the next year. He shows up without a suitcase. He shows up with just the clothes on his back, a, a, a blue t-shirt, a pair of torn jeans, and some sneakers that, at this point, the uh, the farm director for the Tigers, his name was Hoot Evers. I, I knew I knew a guy named Hoot. Yeah, it was an old buddy of mine named Hoot. Was he funny? Uh, he was. He was a Hoot. Actually, he got the name because he looked like an owl. Uh, it was odd. Did he wear glasses? No, he just had huge eyes. Wow. And a beak. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so farm director Hoot Evers actually offered to bronze these sneakers, not for prosperity or anything, but just because these sneakers were so old, they reeked, and he couldn't stand <laughs> walking into the clubhouse because you could smell it everywhere. Oh, so Fidridge is also, you know, this is the 70s. He's a free spirit. He's got some really wild blonde hair. The club tells him, you need to get a haircut. So he says, okay. So he goes out. He gets the slightest of haircuts that nobody can even tell. And then he comes back and he actually hands the bill for $5 to the club to pay because he didn't have any money. <laughs> So he didn't have a great spring training, but he made the big league club out of spring training because of continued injuries to this club. So Detroit is just hurting for pitchers. He celebrated the news of making the, the big league club by sneaking into the stadium at midnight and having relations with his girlfriend on the mound as a, as a little <laughs> celebratory. <laughs> so good for him. So the, uh, the, the season starts. He's in the bigs. He pretty much sits in the bullpen for half a month. He finally makes his major league debut in late April in relief, and then he sits in the bullpen for almost another month not playing. So May 15th rolls around, and the starter that was going to face the Indians gets sick. So Fidrich is called in to make an emergency start. All he does is keeps the Indians hitless through six innings, he gets the complete game win, giving up only two hits, and the Tigers win two to one. Wow. So as impressive as this win is, the real story was Fidrich and all of his kind of mannerisms when he gets to the mound. So on the mound, he's a he's a bundle of ticks and twitches. He runs to and from the dugout. He would often be seen on his hands and knees on the pitcher's mound, shifting and manicuring the dirt so that he could have it just the way that he wanted it right before an inning. He was a ferocious handshaker. He would shake everybody's hand. If an infielder made a particularly nice play, he'd sprint over to them and shake his hand in gratitude. (laughs) That's awesome. He would also uh, be known to, to talk to the ball while he was on the mound. People thought he was talking to himself. He's actually talking to the ball. He was telling the ball what he wanted it to do or where he wanted it to go. 
he would even be known to run the ball the entire 60 feet six inches from the mound back to the umpire and ask for a new one because he thought that ball still had some hits in it so he didn't want to throw it <laughs> so this is oh, that's awesome to me, this is all really strange because Fidrich is a right-handed pitcher. This is stuff that is usually reserved for a lefty. Right. Yeah, that's the southpaw psycho, you know. <laughs> so Fidrich's second start uh, was 10 days later. He starts in Boston. He's got a bunch of friends and family there because he grew up in the area. He pitched well, but he lost. He gave up a two-run home run to Carl Yastrzemski, and Louis Tiant shut out the Tigers. But well, shoot, no shame there, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean you, you get beat by Yastrzemski and Tion. Shot to Yaz and 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 Louis Tion is out there, literally twirling a, a gem. Mm, yes, twirling, switching, and uh, wrenching his back. I was pretty proud of that twirling a gem. Yeah, that was good. So after that, though, Fidget steamrolls through the rest of the American League. After that, he comes up with an eleven inning complete game win over the Brewers. A week later, another 11-inning win over the Rangers. He goes back to Fenway. Carl Yastrzemski had his number. He gave up another home run to Yaz, but the Tigers won the game, which was his sixth consecutive win at that point. So June 28th comes around. Mark Fidrich is going to take on the New York Yankees at Tiger Stadium in front of a national audience on ABC's Monday Night Baseball. Now, I'm sure you're like me. You remember Monday Night Baseball. There were really only two national games at this point during baseball season. There is a Saturday day game of the week, and there was Monday Night Baseball. Yes. And for someone like me that didn't grow up in a major league city, those were, you know, that was it. That was all the live baseball I got to see. So Yes, and I'll tell you what, the Johnston household stopped on Saturday mornings in the spring and summer and on Monday nights, because that was when baseball was on TV, and they were just as important as watching This Week in Baseball with Mel Allen. Oh, This Week in Baseball. Oh, I love that show. That and the Baseball Bunch. Oh, yeah. Those were, those were on Saturday mornings, those are what I would watch until the NBC Saturday game came on. Right. So... Big national audience, Mark Fidrich on the national stage. He beats the Yankees 5-1, to one, complete game win. And get this, the game took an hour and 51 minutes. Wow. The fans actually refused to leave the stadium after the game until Fidrich came back out from the clubhouse for a curtain call. And he only did that after he was forced out by teammate. After that, the, the bird went national. The bird was the word, as the kids say. Yes. So Fidrich finished up the first half with back-to-back -back shutouts. At the All-Star break, he has nine wins and an ERA of 1.85. He is selected to start the All-Star game for the American League. As a rookie, he is starting the All-Star game. Wow. He ended up losing the game. He gave up two runs early, but who cares? It's the All-Star game. Right. Teams actually started to ask the Tigers if they could alter their rotation so Fidrich would pitch against them at home. <laughs> he drew a crowd. Can you imagine the Yankees coming up to somebody and saying, if the Yankees came up to the Mariners and, and said, hey, is there any way you could start uh, Felix Hernandez when, you, uh, when you're in town next week? <laughs> I mean, now they probably would love that. But, you know, yeah. in his prime. Right. So the Tigers obviously 
did not do that, but they did actually change their rotation so that he would start at home more often. So on average at this point, the Tigers would draw about 33,000 fans per game when Fidrich was starting versus under 14,000 when he didn't. Wow. So Fidrich finished the season with a 19-9 and record and a 2.34 ERA. He had 24 complete games. He obviously easily won the Rookie of the Year, and he actually finished second in the Cy Young voting behind Jim Palmer. Maybe you've heard of him. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that guy. So looking at some of his other rookie numbers, uh, one from a sabermetric standpoint, he had a 9.6 wins above replacement. And in the ERA plus department, he was at 158, where the league average is about 100. So just he just blew away everybody. And the, the funny thing is he wasn't a power pitcher. So he ended up with over 250 innings, 250 and a third innings in his rookie season. He only struck out 97. So hmm. he would just put the ball in play and nobody could hit him very hard, except for apparently Carl Ustremski. Right, exactly. Uh, just to make a point, you said he had 23 complete games. 24 complete 24 games. 24 complete games. Last year, there were eight players, eight pitchers tied for the most complete games in the season. You want to guess how many? One each? Nope, two. <laughs> eight players had two complete games. And Mark Fidrich threw 24. <laughs> Times have changed. I know, I thought I'd throw that in. So... Well, okay, so he has this great season, right? This great rookie season. Well, what are you going to do as soon as the season ends? You're going to write a book. He wrote a book immediately during the offseason called No Big Deal. I don't think it was that big a deal. I couldn't find a whole lot of news about it, nor did I find the book. No. So Fidridge did not have an agent. He never had an agent his whole career. He did have one to book appearances outside of baseball, but when it came to his baseball contract, he always dealt with the team one-on-one. So immediately after his rookie year, the Tigers gave him a $25,000 bonus, and then they signed him to a three-year extension worth $225,000. Now, this deal was thought to be a steal for the Tigers because he was estimated to draw over a million dollars for the club because of the attention he was generating, all the extra fans he would bring in to games where he was throwing. So, of course, he signed a very team friendly contract. Yeah. He shot an Aqua Velva commercial, which is something that a lot of top major league stars did at this time. It took a day to shoot, and as far as I can tell, it was never aired. I don't think it came out well. I found other commercials, Aqua Velva commercials. I found Pete Rose, Fred Lynn. And if you've got a second or two, it it is worth going and watching these commercials on YouTube. <laughs> it is just so... It, it's so manly to wear <laughs> Aqua Velva. It is. is. Is really the point that they're getting across here. Hey, Pete Rose, what's a man really want from his aftershave? No fancy perfumes, or fancy bottles, or fancy prices. Uh-uh. Man wants to smell like a man. That's why I like Aqua Velva. It seems so refreshing and masculine. That's right. A man wants to... Feel like a man. Yeah. Feel like a man. You know, Pete, there is something about an Aqua Velva man. Fans were called bird watchers, and they would... 
I have to say it, they would flock to the stadium Oof. hours before Oof. game time, every time Fidrich would start. Uh, he adorned the cover of Sports Illustrated twice, the most famous, of course, being the one with him and Big Bird together, thusly proving that they were not actually the same person. <laughs> he was also the cover boy for Rolling Stone magazine and the Sporting News. So spring training 1997 rolls around. And Fidrich is in the outfield. He's shagging balls during batting practice with outfielder Rusty Staub, LeGrand Orange. So he was out there, and he's diving for balls. As a, as a pitcher, he's out there in the outfield during batting <laughs> practice, diving for balls. So Rusty Staub's like, what are you doing? Chill out. Don't, don't get hurt. The season isn't even started yet. So just as he says that, and... and this has been confirmed that this is the series of events. As soon as he finishes saying that, fly ball set in their direction. Fidrich looks at Staub, says, are you going to get that? And Staub just goes, no. <laughs> so Fidrich runs after this ball and dives after it. As he dives, he hurts his knee. Oh. Now, he, he gets up, he looks over, sees the manager is talking to a reporter, didn't see it. Then he finds the trainer. The trainer's looking the other way. So he's like, all right, nobody saw me do that. So he goes back, stands next to Staub, and Staub goes, you hurt yourself, didn't you? And he goes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't tell anybody about it. But he, you know, he just, he wanted to play. But the knee hurt enough that it altered his motion while he was pitching. So he had to have surgery on it, on his knee. So he comes back from this injury. He pitched okay after his return but then on a game on july 4th at baltimore he threw a pitch and he just felt his arm go dead so unknown to anybody at the time he had actually torn his rotator cuff mm. but he pitched through this and ended the season with a six and four record and a 2.89 era so he has torn his rotator cuff and he still finished the season with an era under a three now, this is a time when, when people didn't know what a torn rotator cuff was. There wasn't MRIs. There wasn't Dr. James Andrews. There wasn't, wasn't even Tommy John at this point. That's right. So, so he pitched uh, the next season. He still has that rotator cuff. Nobody was able to diagnose what the problem was. He only pitched 16 games the next three seasons fighting with that injury, which, again, just nobody knew about. In 1981, he attempted a comeback. So now that that initial contract with the Tigers is over. So he attempts a comeback with the Red Sox, who signed him to a minor league deal. He spends the season at AAA Pawtucket, but never gets the call up to the bigs. And that was the end of his career. It burned, burned bright at the beginning, and then he hurt himself and just never was able to get back to, to anything close to what he started with. In 1985, Fidrich actually went to see the aforementioned Dr. James Andrews, who was, of course, the famous Tommy John doctor. Right. And he was finally diagnosed with rotator cuff injury. So it had been almost 10 years since he suffered it. He finally had the surgery. And at 30 years old and out of the game for five years, that was it. He hung it up. Wow. So unfortunately, this story has a, has a sad well, a, a sadder ending. Fidrich died April 13th, 2009 at the age of 54. After his career was over, he moved back to his hometown. He was uh, just, again, this is a really nice guy. 
watching the interviews with him, he went back. He would help out at uh, at a diner in town. He lived on a farm where he raised animals. He owned a dump truck that he would hire out to a local road construction company. And he knew that it was going to be needed next season. So he was working underneath it, doing some work trying to get it ready, when the owner of that company stopped by his house to chat and see how the truck was coming. And he found Fidridge's body underneath the truck, unfortunately. He had passed away. Mm -hmm. His clothing had apparently gotten caught on the drive shaft and had caused him to suffocate. Oh, my gosh. So just a a horrific ending for just a a really nice guy that was one of the greatest characters in this game. If only for really a season, It, it was just a nationwide phenomenon. Now, I found a couple of things that really amused me that that I thought were were some great antidotes. Manager Ralph Houck had to order Fidrich to the end of the bench on days when he wasn't pitching because he wouldn't shut up when he was not in the game. <laughs> so Houck couldn't even think with Fidrich there talking the entire game. So he banned him from part of the dugout when he wasn't pitching. <laughs> and this is my favorite. In a 1998 interview, Fidrich was asked if he could invite anyone in the world to his house for dinner, who would it be? So Fidrich thought for a second, and he goes, I think it would have to be my buddy and former Tigers teammate, Mickey Stanley. And they said, why? He goes, well, he's never been to my house. (laughs) Some people just think a different way than the rest of us. (laughs) So there it is, the much too brief career and life of Mark the Bird Fidrich. So Mark, now you are going to take us back a little bit further in time. And you are going to talk to us about baseball in time of war. That's right. That's right. Uh, Specifically World War II, um, where a lot, and we'll get into how many, but a lot of players uh, at the prime of their career left baseball to go fight for the United States against Germany and Japan, obviously. But it's uh, it's an interesting story. I initially was going to look up and talk about the players that missed time and what their uh, stats could have been like compared to what they were. Um, but the more I read about, uh, as I studied it, the more I realized there are a lot more interesting things about baseball in World War II. So just to kind of kick it off, we'll talk a little bit about the selective service. And it was uh, actually in 1940 that the United States required all men between the ages of 21 and 45 to register for the draft. There were 2 million men who joined the military either voluntarily or were drafted. The first military draft uh, took place when President Roosevelt signed the Selective Training and Service Act, and it continued all the way through 1973. Over that time, more than 10 million men entered military service through the Selective Service System, and that was just during World War II. Okay, do you want to guess how many major league, just major league, baseball players left Major League Baseball to go fight for the U.S.? So let's think about this, see if I can make an educated guess. Okay. I, I do know that at this point in the, in, the, in the 40s, there were 16 teams in the majors. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume they were still 25-man rosters. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that maybe a quarter of those guys left now. I, I don't have a calculator, and I did go to a Pac-12 school, so I don't know what that number would be. Yeah, and I, I 
when I first signed to do the show, I was told there wasn't going to be any mathematics. So I didn't either. I don't know what that number would be, but I'm sure it's a good guess. I'll just tell you, 500, 500 major leaguers wow. joined the service for World War II. I wouldn't have thought it would have been that many. Um, and then when they when uh, the draft happened and all these guys joined, uh, most of them joined without being drafted. It was a shorter period of service if you joined without being drafted. But it was interesting because all these players were gone and – there was a lot of questions about, you know, should baseball continue? Should anybody even, you know, be out there cheering for teams when other stuff's going on around the world that's much more important and, and much more much more difficult to, to deal with? And the overwhelming majority of people, especially soldiers, said, yeah, absolutely, keep it going. Um, we don't want baseball to stop. It's, it's a nice a nice way to uh, uh, have a distraction from all the stuff we're facing. We're getting shot at every day. It's good to have a distraction and wonder what the Red Sox are doing right now. You know, uh, President Roosevelt actually made a direct plea to one of the great nicknames of all time, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was the uh, commissioner of baseball at that time. And uh, it was called uh, the Green Light Letter. And Roosevelt said, and I quote, I honestly feel that it would be best for the country to keep baseball going. He added that he would like to see more night games and, and that uh, hardworking people can attend. So baseball went, all right. Uh, and they, uh, they uh, soldiered on. You like that reference? Anyway, I, I had a couple of quotes from soldiers that wrote in uh, to Kennesaw Mountain Landis. There's a gentleman named uh, Private John Stevenson who said, baseball is part of the American way of life. Remove it, and you remove something from the lives of American citizens, soldiers, and sailors. For the morale of the soldier and the morale of the American people, keep them playing. So it's pretty cool. Everybody really sort of agreed that, yeah, you know, it is a, a dark time, but we got to have some light out there. The thing was that the quality of player, obviously, had gone down dramatically. And in fact, sports writer Frank Graham described the sport back then uh, as the tall men against the fat men at the company picnic. So the quality of the game wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible, and it gave people something to root for. So it, it marched on, and, and baseball kept going. Uh, many of the stars who, who did join the military, uh, DiMaggio, Stan Musial, uh, Yogi Berra, so on like that, a lot of these guys were kept from the front lines. I shouldn't have said Yogi Berra because he was actually on the front line. But DiMaggio, Musial, some guys like this, they, uh, they played what they called service ball. They went around and, and played in exhibition games that entertained the troops. And eventually they all did go off to war. vast majority of minor leaguers actually went straight to combat. And that's another interesting thing is you want to guess how many minor leaguers went? Because nah, we're going to end up doing math again. <laughs> the it, it's interesting but but kind of sad uh the number of minor leaguers that joined the military for world war ii 4076 4000 do you have any sort of numbers of how many of them came back um the overwhelming majority in fact i could only find a handful of baseball players major and minor league that were killed in action two only two major league players were killed in world war ii out of the 500 hmm. You know, I don't know if that was from playing a lot of exhibition games or, you know, just being athletic or whatever. 
But the interesting thing about that is that before World War II, there were 44 minor league organizations. Okay, so 44 different minor leagues. After World War II, after all these players were taken away, only 12 remained. So Teams or leagues? Leagues. Wow. 44 leagues went to 12 leagues. 44 yeah. leagues. That's, that's almost an entire minor league per state. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of those teams were not necessarily barnstorming teams, but. They weren't all affiliated with a major league team. No, no, absolutely not. In fact, the majority of them were individual teams that were put together by uh, an owner, just uh, devoid of any sort of affiliation with a major league team. Got it. Yeah. So, you know, just to give you an idea, I do want to get into a little bit of what some of the players did. Um, Yogi Berra being my favorite, he was actually in World War II at, at D-Day. He was, uh, let me see here, he was a gunner's mate on board a landing craft on Omaha Beach. Yogi Berra. That just blew me away. I was like, wow, Yogi's the man, you know? Okay, so Hank Greenberg missed a lot of time, four years in fact, to uh, fight in World War II. And, you know, just to give you an idea how good this guy was, the world record for home runs at the time was Babe Ruth's 60 in one season. All right. Hank Greenberg hit 58 home runs in 1938. The man could hit. He was an all around great player. When the time came around to join the military, he gave up his $55,000 annual salary for $21 a month in army pay. Interestingly, when he got to the end of his service, he felt like he hadn't done enough. So he re-upped for another couple of years. Wow. And yeah, Greenberg was a, a very committed American soldier and one heck of a baseball player. Look him up if you get a chance. Um, he's got some awesome numbers. I saw one year where he was somehow snubbed from the All-Star game and he had over 100 RBIs at the All-Star break and went on to win the AL MVP, but wasn't an All-Star. That's ridiculous. He. He had a year 37. He had 184 RBIs. <laughs> that might have been the year. That, I think, he, you know, it says he was an all-star then. He finished, listen to this, he finished third in MVP voting. The guy hit 40 home runs and 184 RBIs. He finished third. Wow. Okay, sorry. I just noticed that. That blew me away. He had um, one, two, three, four, five, six times in his career. He hit over 100 RBIs. His batting average, depending on the year, was anywhere from as low as 269 up to 348. Just a great player, and, and we lost him for four years to World War II, where obviously he was much more valuable to his country. Here's an interesting note, just to throw in a side note. Louisville Slugger, the maker of the baseball bats, actually turned their um, wood-turning bat skills into the production of stocks for the M1 carbine rifle mm. within months of Pearl Harbor. So... Players had to get their bats elsewhere because Louisville Slugger was making rifles. I thought that was pretty interesting. That's very cool. I didn't um, know that. There's a lot of questions about would baseball survive the war, and and it did. It's it it went on, and despite the um, less quality play, people still flocked to the ballpark. Now, what what's great is that baseball went forward around the world at that point because there were soldiers everywhere that loved the game. So all over the world, uh, intramural leagues were formed anytime there was an American presence. And this was encouraged by the military brass as it was seen as a way to, you know, distract soldiers from what was difficult going on at the time, give them something to focus on other than the war. Now, this is where it gets really cool. 
after the Nazis surrendered, the Americans set up league play in Germany. Okay, the majority <laughs> of the games. This is this is crazy because I had never heard this. The majority of the games were played in the conquered, repurposed stadium der Hitlerjugend, which is the Hitler Youth Stadium in Nuremberg. It was a it was a place where the Nazi Party held their rallies and stuff like that. They went in, they painted over all the swastikas, put up American flags, and they decided they were going to play organized baseball right there in, in Hitler Youth Stadium, which is just so cool. It's just like a big in-your-face. In you know what I'm saying? right. Exactly. Interestingly, um, about that series, uh, they, uh, there was a team of major and minor leaguers that were, most of them were in the 71st Division. That was uh, George Patton's Third Army. And um, so they won the German championship. There were leagues in Germany and in France and so on. They won the German league and they were called the Third Army Red Circlers. Basically, their insignia was a red circle. So they were just called the Red Circlers. They decided they were going to play a best of five series against the team from France, the OISE All-Stars. OISE stood for, of course, I'm sure you figured this out, Overseas Invasion Service Expedition. Obviously. So, the OISE All-Stars, they played in what was called the European Theater of Operations World Series, the ETO World Series. So when they got them together, they started the World Series over there on September 3rd, 1945. 50,000 American soldiers filled the stadium. They wanted to see some baseball. <laughs> and uh, there was some good ball being played there. It's, I'd like to read a quote from writer Robert Weintraub, who uh, is, actually studied Major League Baseball in World War II for most of his life. Um, he says, uh, the infield was finely crushed red brick, the outfield perfectly mown green grass. German POWs, this is great, German POWs had been ordered to build extra bleachers to accommodate the large crowd. A brilliant sun warmed the faces of the GIs. Vendors sold beer and Coke and peanuts, just like back home. The Stars and Stripes flew over the field and a bugle corps played the national anthem before the cry of play ball. Armed Forces Radio had a setup behind one dugout transmitting the actions to the boys who couldn't be there. For those in the stands sitting in the sun and drinking beer this afternoon reminded them of what was soon to come, a return to their families and the simple pleasures of their favorite game. That's awesome. I thought that was a really poetic description, that, yeah. That is very descriptive. I, I could see it, and I can, man, I can just imagine yeah. that. you being away at war and, and getting to go back and how important baseball was to everybody in the, in the country at that point. That's, that's a great quote. Yeah. I really thought that crystallized the whole idea quite well. There is one more thing I want to mention, and I, I know I get into this a lot, but baseball integration uh, to me was the most important piece of baseball history we could talk about. And this was fully a year and a half before Jackie Robinson was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers. The, uh, OISE team, they were not nearly as good. They didn't have as many big-name players as the, the German team, the Red Circlers. So what they did was they recruited some of the Negro League players who were also over there fighting. They had two really dominant stars from the Negro Leagues, Willard Home Run Brown, which is a great nickname, and their top-notch starter, Leon Day. Um, the Red Circlers were the heavy favorite, but Willard Home Run Brown lived up to his name and hit the living daylights out of the ball while uh, Leon Day threw nothing but gems and in a miraculous 
upset, the OISE All-Stars defeated the Red Circles to win the series three games to two. That was the Overseas World Series that we played and the first integration of uh, ballplayers from uh, Negro Leagues to uh, Minor Leagues and Major League Baseball players. Yeah, um, one more thing I wanted to throw in just because I thought you'd enjoy the nickname of this guy. The first Major League player regular to be drafted to World War II was Hugh Losing Pitcher Mulcahy. (laughs) No lie. No lie. The guy, uh, first of all, if your name's Mulcahy, you sound like you're from a Bugs Bunny cartoon, or right? Mash. All right, Mulcahy. <laughs> Come over here, Mulcahy. Mc- all right, Mulcahy. Okay, anyway. It, Mulcahy um, was uh, called losing pitcher because that's pretty much what he did. And he, he was an had this great quote. Eater. When, an innings eater is he, the better way to put he that. He apparently was. Yeah. And his name was losing pitcher Mulcahy. I just wanted to point that out again because it's so awesome. His famous, famous quote was, when he joined the military, he signed and he said, my losing streak is over. Now I play for a winning team. <laughs> That's a poster right there. That's a recruitment poster. Yeah, no kidding, right? And and who who wouldn't look at that and, and want to join if they saw you losing pitcher Mulcahy <laughs> on the poster? What a, what a name. Anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that. But that's kind of my whole story about World War II. Not so much about the players a little bit, but also about just how baseball, one, wouldn't give up because of of a world war and two sallied forth and went into foreign countries and brought baseball all over the world um you know an interesting aspect uh, and an unintended consequence obviously of world war ii but something positive to have come out of it and is the expansion of baseball so when i think of war and and players and especially superstars leaving their careers in in the majors to go and serve their country the player i always think of is ted williams and my you know so i i've got his numbers here in front of me and when he enlisted he enlisted for three years and at the age of 24 he had only been in the big leagues for four years when he enlisted the year 1942 which was his final year before going off to serve he won the triple crown Jeez. And then he's like, you know what? I've got to go. I've got to go serve my country. And I know there's the the famous picture of Ted Williams. He served in the the Marine Corps or the Navy. I'm not sure which it, which of them it is, but I, I remember the picture of him kind of standing with his with his leg up next to a to a jet. Which I don't know that he was a fighter pilot himself, but. Um, yeah, he was a Navy fighter pilot. Yeah, I mean that Ted Williams, beyond being just one of the greatest baseball players to ever live to win the triple crown and then say, you know, I've got a higher purpose is yeah, just incredible. And, and for all of the players that could do that was just, I mean, beyond anything that I could ever comprehend doing. Oh man. And, and like you say, he was a fighter pilot. He didn't go out and just play exhibition games or something like that. The absolute pinnacle of his career, he was out, flying naval planes around, blowing stuff up that wanted to kill us. I thought that was, I I read that, I thought that was super cool. Yeah, so Ted Williams, so I hadn't really thought of this. He ended his career, he played till he was 41, but he ended his career with with 2,654 hits. So I would, Ted Williams to me, if you told me he didn't have 3,000 hits, I would be flabbergasted. But if you, 
if you added those three years that he missed out, you know, he averaged about 150 hits per season. So that is 450 hits. That puts him right almost at, it puts him almost at 3,100 hits for his career. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, something similar would be Bob Feller who um, also gave up those yeah, four years. Rapid Robert. Yeah. He had won um, the previous three seasons uh, or the previous, yeah, the previous three seasons, 24 games, 27 games and 25 games. Then he went off to war when he came back, kind of a rough first year getting back into it. But then he became dominant Bob Feller again, and he won 26 and 20 games respectively after that. That's great. It, the, speaking of that, so yeah, Ted Williams came back. He hit 342 in his return, 38 home runs, led the league with 156 RBIs, and won the MVP. He was pretty good, but uh, I, I I really was blown away by the 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 patriotism and the lack of of any sort of complaining or whining by any of these players. They felt like, and in fact, I would say they knew they were they were going to support a more noble noble and a higher cause. And uh, every last one of them went into it saying, you know, I can help my country. This is what I want to do. You know, the overwhelming majority of them came back and played ball again. That's uh, that's some, some good stuff, Mark. Thank you very much. So now let's move on to the final segment of the show that has spawned a, a cult following mainly because of this incredible theme song that we had generously written and performed for us, a segment that we like to call, and so we do, Second Best. Your second best. Better than most of the rest. Not better than number one. Number one is better than anyone. So second best, if you are new here, welcome. If you uh, are back and have just fast forwarded through the first part of the show just to get here, I, I guess you're welcome. We'd, we'd prefer you listen to the whole show as well. But this is where <laughs> we come up with a topic, one of us will. And instead of just doing the standard What's the best answer to this topic? We want to know what is the second best answer to this topic. So this week it is Mark's turn. He's going to give me a topic of which I do not know. He will then give me some time to think about it while he tells me what his answer is. And uh, we'll see how it plays out from there. So Mark, what is our topic today? Well, I'm going to go a little bit off of the beaten path talk about going to baseball games and i want you to tell me what your favorite food item is at a baseball game and what your second favorite is it, it's uh there's a lot of traditional things i'm not talking about liquids because you know everybody's just gonna say <laughs> beer um but I, you know aside from working a lot of games i go to a lot of games if i'm not working and i eat ballpark fare so i i gotta say uh, i'm a traditionalist and my favorite thing to have at a ballpark is a hot dog a good hot dog, you know, nothing like I would make when I was a kid by putting it in the microwave. And then putting it, I'm talking putting about, it in, a, in a slice of bread then? And, yeah, because <laughs> mom didn't buy the uh, hot dog buns. Um, but I, I love hot dogs, and I love to eat them a good hot dog at a ball game. Now, what's my second favorite food at the ball game? This is interesting. 
Um, I actually like those nasty nachos with just the cheese sauce put over them. Oy. You know, and the occasional the occasional jalapeno pepper. Uh, you know, I, I actually like it when it sits on the chips for a while and they get a little bit floppy, kind of soggy <laughs> oh, chips. I, I can, I can absolutely not just picture what you're talking about, but I can <laughs> feel it. I can feel picking up one of those and it kind of, you know, bends over on, and the cheese is cold. The cheese gets cold as yeah. soon as they, you know, pump it out of that, that, container and it comes through that spout you can see it's hot but by the time they hand it to you it's already cold and starting to congeal on the top that's right yeah but that's the way it should be and and i'll tell you what let's let's slow down on calling it cheese okay (laughs) it is it is cheese by name maybe not by definition orange topping yeah the uh, orange probably dairy topping (laughs) that goes on these i you know, these are terrible for you. They are not exactly gourmet fare, but I love those nachos, just the cheese and the jalapenos on the chips. Those are my second favorite. That's my second favorite thing to eat at the ballpark. I, you know, I can say in my youth, I, I did enjoy those. Now I, I can't, I cannot do those. So my, I guess my, my best response here, and I'm going to have a hard time on this one. I likewise am a traditionalist, so I would say the best food that I have at a ballpark is a hot dog, and it's always what I will gravitate towards. I, yes. In the past two years, I finally got to Wrigley Field a couple of years ago, and I had a Chicago dog while I was there, and that was mm. absolutely friggin' incredible. That is the best hot dog I've ever had. Last year, I was uh, at progressive field i think it's called now the cleveland indians and i had a hot dog that actually had fruit loops on it i saw that that was on the menu and i had to have it wow i love hot dogs at a ballpark and i agree with you that that is definitely the best i have a hard time coming with the second best because i will generally just have a couple of hot dogs and a couple of beers i mean i've had the ichi roll there at at safeco i'm sorry t-mobile park that's gonna be a tough one yes yeah Uh, as a fan of sushi i was not that impressed with it it's shocking that i would would not get great sushi at a ballpark uh yeah but there you know you could have had at safeco field you could have had the uh the crickets or the locust or whatever yeah yeah they've got those here in oakland too and i I haven't haven't had those yet i yeah, you've really got me here. I I can't remember if when I went to PNC Park in Pittsburgh, if you go to Pittsburgh, you've got to have a Permani Brothers sandwich, which was absolutely great. I've had it a couple of times. I'm trying to remember if they've got one at the ballpark because I would, I would put that in there. Otherwise, I have a real hard time coming up with anything other than a hot dog. You, you might have hit me with a question where I don't have a second best. Man, yeah. Wow, me. do I win a prize or something? Yes, you, yeah. you, you, you get my adulation. I get an $8 gift card to Mervyn's. I'm excited about that. <laughs> another, another ballpark fair that I remember, and mostly from the minor leagues, remember those frozen chocolate malts you ate with a wooden spoon? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and remember they're still around. Which, but I have a problem with Dippin' Dots, because I remember Dippin' Dots from when I was a youngster, and it said ice cream of the future. 
well, how far in the future is this the ice cream? It's it's now 2019 and it's still the ice cream of the future and it hasn't changed. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. When is the future? When is this future? And why are we getting rid of ice cream in its current form? What's what's wrong with it? Why do we need to go to dot form? Right. Exactly. I mean, come on. You want to keep that special for the astronauts? Go ahead. And if you want to sell it to us, go ahead. But don't tell us it's the ice cream of the future, darn it. That insults our intelligence. With that, we are going to wrap up another episode of Two Strike Noise. I would like to remind you that you can follow us on uh, social media. We are at Two Strike Noise. That is T-W-O Strike Noise, both on Twitter and Instagram. We love to post uh, material that we talk about on the shows. But as well as that, we love to just post some goofy stuff that we see that's related to baseball so be sure to follow us on social media also please if you could uh take take time out to uh rate us uh on on itunes or whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on uh it always helps and we love to hear from you you can yell at us you can tell us we were wrong you can tell us how great the yankees and or red Sox are and we'll roll our eyes at you and uh, we, we love to, to hear anything, though. Or if you've got any uh, show suggestions, we would love to talk about something that uh, maybe you want to hear about. Who knows? It could be a, a full-blown thing if, uh, if you happen to tickle our fancy. So please follow us all. Absolutely. Mark, thank you again. Uh, There's a great story on baseball and war. And thank you for being here. Always a pleasure, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> And uh, until then, we will see you next week on Two Strike Noise.